Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 33 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union. But by now, you know that we all know them better as DCU. Right now, every dollar counts, and DCU understands that. And they've always got ways to help your money work harder for you. If you love your car, but not your car and auto loan, Refinancing with DCU could put you back in the driver's seat with a lower monthly payment. They offer the same low rates to their members for new and used vehicles. Find out what DCU could mean to you and your current auto loan when you refinance with them. So visit dcu.org for more information. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by mistresscarry.com which is the one place where you can find everything Mistress Carrie. Every episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast, every sit rep, every after action report, every episode of Cocktails in the War Room, which by the way is every Tuesday night live on my Facebook page at 8.30. And there's a ton of extras too. Photo galleries, the blog, the events calendar that's filled right now with live concert streams. And hopefully someday we'll be filled with regular concert dates. And there's also the official online Mistress Carrie store where you can find a ton of awesome merchandise. T-shirts and hoodies, beanies, coffee mugs, shot glasses, pint glasses, and everything you need to outfit your new badass and kick-ass home office. Plus links to all of my official social media pages all of the outlets for the podcast, and the link to my official fan club, the Mistress Carrie Backstage Pass on Patreon. MistressCarrie.com is the center of the Mistress Carrie universe, and it's a beautiful shade of purple. Okay, episode 33 of the podcast I've been looking forward to. I have known Maddie Blake for, it's got to be almost 30 years now. He did a couple different stints at WAAF, He's a stand-up comic. He's a television host. He's a film and television actor, a voice actor, and so much more. He's also a certified Black Crow stalker, but we'll talk about that in the episode. And he's a podcast host and kind of an expert in the paranormal. Maddie Blake is kind of all over the place, which is why I couldn't wait to sit him down and get him on the podcast. We talked about all of that and more. Bigfoot, UFOs, Oak Island. Plus, we talked about some serious stuff, too, of being locked in the house over COVID, working on his marriage, counseling. I mean, 
I got to tell you, Maddie and I were all over the place, but it was so good to catch up with them. If you loved WAF, if you love mysteries and the paranormal, well, you are going to love Maddie Blake. He's always been one of those goofballs that I was so happy that I had in my family, even though he secretly wishes in another universe that he and I had gotten married. So allow me to introduce you to Maddie Blake. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely, pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your bra on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the Band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. This is Marilyn Manson, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to. Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Maddie? Yes. Can you hear me? I can hear you. It's so good to see you. Oh, I feel like I, uh, you know, I say this with all due respect because it's going to sound, it might sound insulting, but I've, you, <laughs> you were like our mom at WAF and you had Aww. such a loving, caring, you know, I think. Not to get off right away on a tangent no, just, here, but just get off, Maddie. Just go. I, I, you, you on the air, and you are all those things. Like many people, you're complex. You're you're multifaceted, but you know you're you're the baddest bitch in Boston and all that stuff. But off the air, you are the most loving, uh, caring, um, motherly figure for all of us. You know, you're constantly going, "What can I do for you, honey? What's the matter, honey? What do you need, honey?" What's, and I'm just like, oh, I love when waitresses call me honey and sweetheart and dear. <laughs> and you I do don't that. notice I'm doing it sometimes. Oh. And sometimes I feel like it's condescending and it like slips out. I, I, no, I didn't take and it. And it's not meant to be that way at all. I, I would catch myself with like interns and street teamers and I was like, maybe I shouldn't be calling them that. But it's not meant to be condescending or anything. It's just out of love. Well, I, I took it as only that and I loved it. And um so yeah, I've missed you. Is my life. I missed you too, and yes, you know sometimes being a mom means you know the the tough love too because sure. I gave you guys plenty of that too. Mm-hmm. Well, not so much me, but other people well, <laughs> <that> deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> I was a good boy. It's it's been a really crazy almost year now. I can't believe that it's been almost a year since the station went off the air. And it's been so much fun to reconnect with people after the fact, you know, like talking to LB and Kevin Barbary and, and, you know, Mike Shue and, and being able to go back and tell some old stories. And in the case of like Kevin Barbary and, and LB, there was a lot of closure there too, which was really strange. You know, Kevin Barbary told me after the fact, he was like, you know, some of the stuff we talked about, I never knew that's how you felt. You know, when he when he left the station and things were kind of weird and, and it 
it's really hard to explain because in one hand we work so closely together but on the other hand we're so fragmented that we wouldn't see each other all of the time right. and we were all operating under our own marching orders right you know that right. we were all given instructions on what was expected from us and sometimes those marching orders went against each other. So I would be told to do something. You guys were told to do something totally different. Yes. And it would cause friction because I would hear what you guys were doing and be like, guys, what the fuck? Right. Right. And it wasn't, it wasn't a, a it wasn't meant to be a, a negative thing. It was just that you guys were being told to do something. And then I was told to do something totally different. And I thought you guys were being told the same thing as me and vice versa. Mm. So it just would get really weird sometimes. Well, some, sometimes that was true. The, the latter part of what you said was true. Sometimes. Sometimes we yeah. were told things and Nick and I would just go, or, or Rocco and I back in the day, would just go <laughs> like, yeah, we're not doing that. And, yeah, right? and, and, and you know, to our detriment uh, in a lot of ways. But a lot of times you're right. It's like, you know, sports teams always have um, unequal treatment sometimes. And sometimes it's based on performance. Sometimes it's not. Which is the when that's when it's frustrating, like your show yeah. beating our show, but yet we're footloose and fran fancy free. You know, I think sometimes it's a self fulfilling prophecy. Like, unfortunately, like the work would fall on you a lot of times. I know that behind the scenes, we would just like be out of dodge, and you would be doing all the stuff that nobody wanted to do. But you know, it's it's almost like a self fulfilling prophecy because you did it. And it was like, then you're like, what am I gonna do? Stop doing it, Maddie? Like, I, I someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it. You know what I mean? So I always felt for you. I always empathized with you. Um, when the station ended, you were the one that I thought of the most. Like, you know, Greg's Greg, he'll do his thing. Um, well, you, Greg you had already Shu. moved on, but Mike yeah, Shu and right. I were like the you last two guards of the temple. Yeah, you and Shu were the two. I was like, man. And, um, and, and my history with AAF goes back actually before any, I go because Greg uh, Hillman was, was friends with my brother growing up. I think a lot of people don't realize how yeah. long your history with AAF actually went. Yeah. So I used to go into the old studio in Westboro and hang out with Greg as a teenager when he was trying to crack, trying to own the morning show. So I go way back with the station. So I always used to laugh. I didn't, I didn't fight the fight with anyone, but they're like, oh, this newcomer. And I'm like, Pfft. Please. <laughs> I, well, and when Maddie and Nick launched, some people didn't realize you were the same Maddie that was on the air with Rocco. Correct. And some people didn't even realize we were a show until like eight months in because they took us off the air on another signal the day Nick and I started. So our first six months on the air was, who are you and where's Carrie? <laughs> <laughs> because everyone on the South Shore, uh, I'll just back up a little bit. The day Nick and I started was the day we lost the signal uh, the 97.7 extra frequency that AAF had for those years. Thank you. And I remember literally driving in that first day and hearing it switch over, which was a weird Which moment. they did in the middle of my show, which was <sighs> awesome to, to field those phone calls. So not only is it hard to start a show on WAF when you're a newcomer, uh, a new show, replacing legends, no matter when you go on, you're replacing a legend of some kind, um, you know, not only was that hard enough, but the first six months was literally, we, six months in, we were getting texts going, where's Carrie? 
and we're like, where's Carrie? <laughs> what are you talking about? Because it was someone on the South Shore who's yeah, kind of Yeah, because I took listening. the shift before you. Right. Mike Shue was on Middays. He became part of the morning show. And I always had empathy for you guys because I got my start when Opie and Anthony got fired. And they had moved Rocco, who was doing 7 to Midnight at the time, to cover afternoons when Opie and Anthony got fired. And even though I didn't replace Opie and Anthony, I was the new person. And so somehow I must have been part of the reason why they got fired, which yeah. was just ludicrous. But that's you. Yeah, like I had, a, you know, the 25-year-old truck-driving purple-haired roadie had, had this grand <laughs> plan to get Opie and Anthony fired so I could take overnights, you know? Right. It just, yeah. but, but it shows... It shows the loyalty that people had to the radio station because they, they were so fiercely loyal to what they loved that any change was jarring. Yes. And it was hard for us, too. Sure. I mean, you know, you and I have been through so much. It's like, and that's part of the reason why, thank you, by the way, for coming on the podcast, because I've wanted to have you on for a while. And then after the new year, I, I just was texting you and trying to reconnect. I had this really weird thing about New Year's where it was like, I really wanted to start this year off on a way more positive note. And so I reached out to a lot of people that I, you know, hadn't really lost contact with because you and I had kept in touch. But like, I really wanted to just start 2021 in a great way. And so I reached out to you. I reached out to Nick. Like I've been keeping in touch with a lot of people and was just like, hey, how are you? I miss you. What's yeah. going on? Yeah, that's awesome. So now today that I get to talk to you, it's awesome. But yeah, it, you know, anytime we changed anything, anything at all at WAF, we always, we always heard about it. Change was difficult. Yeah. And I understand that, you know, people get into their routines and um, they love what they love. And I understand that. It's always, it's always, I, my favorite shows when they change stuff, I'm like, Hey, what? Okay. And it takes me a while. So yeah. I don't even like it when they change the labels on stuff I buy at the supermarket. <laughs> no. Like, you know, when you go to the supermarket and they completely reconfigure the aisles and you used to know where everything is and now you don't like, I hate that. And I'm always like, why the fuck did they do that? So I can totally understand when someone listens to AAF day in and day out, you know, while they're working or whatever, that any change in that it's like, but I listen every day because this is how I like it. Why are you changing it? I like it this way. But the only constant is change, as obviously 2020 showed us, and life just shows us on a daily basis. So it's like you gotta, you gotta roll with it. Amen. Like what? Do, what do the Marines say? Adapt and overcome, right? Yeah. Yeah, they say some other things that we don't have to get into right now, especially now that I'm married to <laughs> yeah, one. Like I, know, I hear, I hear about way too much of what the Marines say. Yeah. Now. Apologies. <laughs> So I was so happy that you were like, yeah, I want to come on the podcast. And I was super psyched that we were going to catch up. And I have this thing that allows me to see people when I talk to them. And so the fact that I actually get to see your face while we're talking makes it so much more social because this last year has been so antisocial. No doubt. Um, I got to say, I've never noticed before, but you have a little bit of Sarah Silverman to you has anyone ever told really? you that yes no i've never noticed it before until because well, right i have my hair up in a ponytail yes. and i have glasses on yes she has great boobs so i'll take that i mean she mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's all i'll say <laughs> so i'll i'll take that oh yeah she's beautiful i mean that's a compliment it's just a, it's yeah. a vague little thing i never noticed before maybe it's, it's the glasses i think yeah, it is because she wears glasses like that right yeah, yeah yeah hair in a ponytail and glasses this is my sarah silverman costume yep. i'll take it Both super talented so there you go 
Oh, she's funnier than I am. Different. Different funny, yeah. but you're funny. And she is is um, something that I aspire to be more like, meaning she's absolutely 100% fearless. Yeah. I consider myself to be that way a lot, but I have so much respect. Maybe it's why I love stand-up comics so much, is that you have to be totally fearless, you know, and you've been a comic for a long, long time. And it's an art form that I absolutely loved. I talked to Lenny Clark about it when he was on the podcast a few weeks ago. The fact that you can go up on a stage with just a microphone in front of a live audience with no safety net, no nothing. That's ballsy to be able to command a crowd. It's one thing to be in a band on stage with your mm. bandmates and you're playing instruments and there's. There's something else, but a stand-up comic just has to go up there and do it with just their brain and their mouth. And that's and it it's it's an art form I love. And so, you know, female comics, it's just, Oof. you know, you gotta be fearless. Yeah. I, I miss doing it. Um, and I struggle with that sometimes. I especially during this pandemic, I've been thinking about I have the thought, should I get back into it? Um because it was something I was good at. You know, I say that with all humility. I was just good at it right off the bat. And um I'm not saying I was a developed comic. I'm just saying I had natural aptitude for it. And I, yeah. I got fast success right away in stand-up. And Lenny is a big reason for that. Um, Lenny saw me. Actually, it was a WAF event. Um, I, I did one of Greg's, uh, as one of, I, was the, I was one of the comics on Greg's, uh, one of his early, one of the, one of the first he did uh, when he did the celebrity golf tournaments. And I just crushed. I made fun of uh, Derek Sanderson. And there was a table full of Bruins and the room just, you know, I, I just, I, it was, it was just one of those ridiculous sets that we have. That's just the room literally lit on fire and just, well, I think no matter what you do, if you work in radio and you have a really good show, you turn the mic off at the end of the show and you go, okay, that was a really good show. And if you're a band and you have a great show, you walk off stage and you're like, I, you know, you get that feeling like I wish it had gone on mm -hmm. forever because you were just on your game. Mm -hmm. And I think anyone that works in any kind of creative arts knows what it feels like when you get into that zone. Oh, it was, I mean, it was just a room full of celebrities. Not even, I was going to say local celebrities, but it was more than that because he had like Mike Mills from R.E.M. And I made fun of him. I made fun of R.E.M. about how wimpy their music was. And he was sat in his lap at one point. You know, it was just, I just destroyed the room. I was there that day. You were? Yeah. You remember that? <laughs> yeah, because, because I was Hillman's intern. Right. And then I was on the street team. So I would, it was, I used to joke with Lenny Clark about it. It was my job to drive the golf cart around and that's drop right. off cases of beer to everybody that was golfing. I remember that's in another life. We, we could have been married because I was, I asked. You always used to say that. I like asked you, Greg you about never you. had the balls. <laughs> I asked Greg about you. I was like, what's her deal? Huh? He's like, you don't, you, you couldn't handle. Yeah. You don't even want to go there, bro. <laughs> that that's an onion right there. Oof. You don't want to start peeling back them layers. Oof. It'll horrify you. He was right. Um, <laughs> But, <laughs> but it's something you and I have always joked yeah. about over the years. Like, you know, you always just say like, you know, we could have been married. In an like, alternate universe, I, an I alternate asked you universe. out. I asked you out and you hate loved me. <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, speaking of being married and stuff, yeah. how have you been handling being locked in the house with the family? Like how, how has it been to be a dad 
to a teenager through this whole thing, answering really hard world questions. And how has it been for your marriage? Because my marriage is A, new, and B, he's deployed. So it's like it's a total opposite thing where it's like we're not even on the same continent through this stuff. Is, is he on a um, like a secret mission? Can you know where he is or no? Yeah, I know okay. where he okay. is. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, he has access to to Wi-Fi and stuff, so we can talk can pretty much every day. Yeah. Okay, yep. All right, that's good. Um, boy, it's so funny, Carrie. Like before the pandemic hit, you know, uh, Maddie and Nick weren't renewed, so I actually had been. <clears throat> struggling with doing nothing and when i say doing nothing i have a i have a a great job doing my stuff for history channel for prometheus entertainment for the, the oak island stuff i do which we can talk about later i guess oh we're gonna talk okay. about oak island trust me. and uh and and so i have a day job as it were but uh i only shoot a week two weeks here and there and then i've got like a month off and then i shoot another two weeks and then a month off so i've got long periods of time with nothing to do and maddie and nick filled that void you know it was a great nine to five or in between oak island so when oak island when, when maddie and nick went away i was a house dad before the pandemic like I, I and i i made myself not pursue another radio job like and i got some calls again in all humility i there were some things going on and people going hey do this now you could look into this hey i heard this opportunity and i just went no i i, I need to learn to do nothing for a while i need to learn to be okay in my home with my wife and child. And that's something I've struggled with my whole marriage. I'm, I'm one of those people, idle time makes me crazy. And um, so I've been working on that over the years. So by the time the pandemic hit, I had been doing like daily meditation in the morning and uh, my prayer time, I, have, I call my prayer chair upstairs and I've got my books and I spend 20 minutes and I max it up to 30 minutes, then I max it up to 45 minutes, max it up to an hour. And so by the time the pandemic hit, I felt like I was in a really good mental place. And I watched kind of everyone freak out. You know, I'm home. I watched friends of mine who are workers, you know, like they work and they're sales guys or whatever. And they're, I don't know what to do. So to answer your question in a long-winded way, it's actually been, I say this with great respect because I know people have been through hell the last year or so. Um, it's been a difficult year, but in a way it's been one of my best years. Well, I think a lot of people are finding that while they're financially struggling or struggling with their career and, and trying to manage all of this stuff, I think people have also been able to kind of wipe their Etch-A-Sketch clean a little bit and, and reprioritize their life with what's important. And a lot of those things are simple. Yes. Spending time with your family, being a better dad, um, you know, working on your home to make it so that you're happier to yes. be in the environment that you're in. It, yes. you know, you don't have to feel bad about about talking about the good things that have happened. It's, I think it's really important that we all have to highlight, like, you know, a few good things did happen in 2020. Yeah, they're they're hard to identify, <laughs> but some of those things they're intangibles yes. too. Spiritual growth and and my marriage and. Um, how can I? You've always been a spiritual guy, anyway. Yeah, which I think would surprise a lot of people. Well, I, I I left it for a long time. You know, there's no better there's no better convert than someone who's been on the other side. You know what I mean? And um, I was lost and now I'm found type of thing. You know, um, but yeah, like I, I work on that stuff. I do the work. You know, I do the spiritual work and I do the work. I remember. It's funny, Tom Brady actually really <laughs> motivated me. I heard him on an interview. Hold on, I just heard the anvil of the name drop. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, hold on. He didn't tell me this personally. <laughs> oh, he was talking to you personally through the television. Yeah, I was talking to Tom the other day, and he really motivated me. No, um, <laughs> Tom Brady was on an interview actually, and it was, and I heard him say, um, and it's weird to be motivated by a guy younger than you, but um, you can find inspiration everywhere, I guess. But he said, um, you know, people don't believe me when I say this, but every day of my life, I pick an area and I try to do a little bit better in that area every day, better husband, better father, better player. And I just went, man, that, and I knew he meant it. I knew it wasn't just TB 12 sales talk. Like he, this guy means it for better, or for worse, he means it. So I really put that into my life. I'm like, all right, what can I do today to be better? Like, so me and Colleen or me and Yoko have a the wifey, the wifey, me and Yoko have the pattern, you know, um, that we've been doing for a, a subconscious pattern we've been doing for 25 years. She does this, I react this way, we do this, we have a silent fight for two days. And then so and I go, all right, let's stop that, for example. What if I did just go and even though I think it's annoying, put the dishes in the freaking dishwasher? You know what I mean? So little things like that. And we, we have gotten closer. And, and um, yeah. Well, it helps. You know, I ask the rock bands all the time about being stuck in a tour bus together on the road. And how the small things affect your relationship because you're stuck in such close proximity. I think everybody's learning what it's like to be in a rock band in a, on a tour bus right now because you're you got a husband and a wife or a husband and a husband wife wife whatever it is, both working from home. So you're looking for your space to be able to isolate and work, and then you're locked in the house with the kids, and you're starting to notice that the little things, the fucking sock on the floor. Now that you're stuck in the house, these things really do magnify and change the vibe in the house and your and your relationship within that house. Absolutely. You mentioned something earlier too I loved. You said, you know, even if it's just improving your environment that you live in because you're we're all stuck there and it's like that's been a huge part. I know there are things that she wants and I'm trying to be super attentive to to those things, you know, as opposed to I think as a young man, as a young married man, we got married. We met in 96, got married in 99. Now you guys have been married a long time. Yeah. Once you'd rejected me, I found her. <clears throat> That's right. Yeah. And she's got green hair, which is odd. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so uh, I think I used to look at it like, what is she bringing to me? And then I would see things that she's not doing. Like, she doesn't do that. She'll do that. And now I've, as, as I've grown in my marriage, it's like, well, what am I bringing to the table? What do I bring to her? And I know that sounds really oversimplistic, but I think a lot of guys fall into that trap. I hear a lot of guys complain about their wives. Well, she doesn't do this. She doesn't. I'm like, well, what are you doing? You don't look like a great prize to me right now, right? So I've really tried to improve in those areas and make this house a better place for her to be in if we're going to be here and spend time doing that stuff. And um, you're right. Well, it, it shocked me. Like I didn't have, I mean, you know, I was always at the radio station 12, 14, 16 hours a day, plus the commute back and forth. And the realization that I came to through all of this whole thing is you work all those hours. And this is anybody, no matter your job, you work so hard to pay the mortgage on the first of every month for a house that you are never in because you're working so much. And then all of a sudden you go there and you, you know, you're exhausted and you fall asleep and then you wake up and you run back out the door again. And so for me this year, this is the most time I've ever spent in my house ever because I just was out of the house all the time. I was just never home. And then all of a sudden you're like, what the fuck am I working so hard for to pay the mortgage 
and to manage a household that I'm just never in. And so I have this year really figured out, A, I love my house. I love being here. But also, like, I need to make sure it's an environment that I'm happy in because I work so hard to keep it. And so, like, I gave myself, it's horrifying, but I gave myself the goal that by the end of the winter, I have to have my whole bedroom closet cleaned out and reorganized. (laughs) And it's like my T-shirt collection alone could choke a rhinoceros. I mean, it's insane. And it stresses me out, I realize, every time I went in there to get dressed because everything's a mess. And literally everything I wear is black. So it's not even like I can find things based on what color they are. So it's like focusing on being being comfortable at home and being like having that be at least a place that is zen for you that is an environment that you can control because the world is so crazy outside that if you can't find peace in your own home that you work so hard to pay for you're not going to find it anywhere. That's so wise. That's how I feel anyway. <clears throat> no, that's so wise and I think you know it turns in it it, it it's like a metaphor too for being comfortable in your own skin, like in being comfortable in your own house, being comfortable in your own skin, being comfortable in your own town. I, I think a lot of us try to, if well, once I get this job, I'll be happy. Or once I get into this town, oh man, if I could live on a, a, a on the water, I'd be happy. It's like, no, you, you bring yourself with you. The, the history of mankind is just story after story of people accomplishing their goals and then dying of a drug overdose. You know what I mean? So, Did you hear a Nuno's episode? No, that's the one I haven't, I haven't got to that one yet. So, so Nuno talked about how he he's the youngest of, of, I believe, 10 kids. And when he was little, they immigrated from the Azores. And he said, you know, we, we had a two-bedroom house on the beach in the Azores, but there were 10 kids in it. And they, my family immigrated to the United States and went to Hudson in search of this better life. He goes, and everyone in the family has spent their entire life trying to get a job good enough so they could afford to go buy a little house on the beach in the Azores. Isn't that the truth? That is it, man. That is it. And so that was part of my challenge is like, because I've got self-esteem issues and, and I've measured myself for way too long based on my accomplishments in this industry that I've ended up in. And I was like, I have to be okay in my own skin. I have to be okay sitting in my own house in my town and, in your own brain. Yes. Can I love my life? Can I love myself? Can I love my, you know, and so all those things have cultivated in this last two years. They've, I've really, I'm really happier than, than I've been in a long time, you know, and, and then the job stuff has been great too, but that wasn't my goal. I put all that away, you know, which is kind of a miracle. I read this book called The Happiness Curve and it speaks to um, that we get we statistically it's a science book in a way it's not a it's not a new agey book it's we statistically get happier from 50 on and there seems to be statisticians who who study this believe there's something encoded in our dna that like kicks in like a mechanism so the happiest people are like 65 to 75 they're like wait till you hit 70 you're going to and it's really speaks to contentment probably you know cuz we put away a lot of the gold drive <clears throat> stuff we have to succeed and so um and accepting too that you had all these goals and maybe you achieved them maybe you didn't but you're accepting of your place in your life and realizing at that point that you're not going to live forever like you think when you're young that you always are going to have time and it's like you're not always going to have time 
I tell you, like I, you, you hit the nail on the head and it's accepting what you can't do and what you can do. And like, I remember I did a mental exercise with myself that came as part of that book. And I, I officially crossed out Saturday Night Live as something I will ever do. I'll never be a, a full-time cast member on Saturday Night Live. It's just not going to happen at, at nearing 50. And, um, you know, there are, it's a relief. It's a, it's a gratitude, but it's also a loss, you know, and, and, but you narrow down like, all right, here's what I have done and here's what I do do. And that wasn't my journey. And letting go of that is like, it's like putting baggage down that you're carrying around, right? It's like, oh, oh, so you can be, you know what it's like, like women, I think do that, um, physically, you know, that there's so much pressure on women in their teens and twenties and thirties to have that perfect body and to look that certain way. And I think I'm noticing it with myself that I don't stress about a couple pounds here or there as much as I used to. And I've accepted that I'm not going to look like Britney Spears looked when she was 19 years old. Because the other thing I'm learning is that Britney Spears didn't even look the way she looked when she was 19. (laughs) That's a great point. Amen. You know what I mean? Like, like, I think, I think women just kind of get to the point that they go, okay, wait a second. Like, but I've done all this, and especially for me, as you know, over the years, I've had so many medical scares, and, and you know, I've had so many physical problems with my legs and the tumor on my spine when I was a kid, and like all of this stuff that it's like, I look at it now, like after my motorcycle accident, I look at all of this and go, the scars that I used to want to cover, I want to show off now because they're battle wounds. Like I, they're like tattoos now. But when I was younger, the scars, I was so embarrassed by them because they were imperfections. And now I'm like, are you kidding? I survived that shit. Look at these scars. These are awesome. It takes a really long time to get to that acceptance place. And what pisses me off is that it takes until you get older to figure it out. It's like, why can't we learn these lessons when we're younger? Why does it take so long? Well, I wonder, you know, back to that thing of like self-protection mechanism, because we're facing, we're staring down the barrel of our mortality as we're, as we're older. So maybe that increased sense of acceptance and happiness and inner peace, I guess is what we're really talking about, protects us from the fact that we're options are over now. They're limited. So as you know, maybe it's something to do with that. And that when you're 25, you know, you don't need protection because you're going to go out and conquer the world, right? When I was 25, that's when I started on the air at AAF full time. <laughs> that's awesome. I was 25 years old. Yeah, God. I, yeah, that's about, uh, yeah, that's about when I guess when I, when I got the gig, when I did that stand-up show, I wasn't thinking radio at all. I was, I was making my way as a stand-up, you know, and, and sketch and improv. I was with Improv Boston and I was doing sketch and improv in Boston, living that life. And doing stand up and, and working my way up, and then Lenny saw me at I you know I did that tournament and Lenny was there and as I it's funny we mentioned that story earlier about that night um, he grabbed me and I was I my job was to open for him and introduce him and I blew the room apart sorry Lenny <laughs> but he did it to me a thousand more times yeah, after that he's been fine yeah, and he, he's he doing did okay just fine. Uh, and he grabbed me by the arm and for a second I thought I went did I go long. Oh shit! You know, maybe I overdid it. The room's still like recovering from my takedown of of Derek Sanderson, and uh, he grabbed me by the arm and he goes, uh, "Hey, you're funny. You got to meet my brother." And I go, "All right." And, and, Who owns the comedy club? Right, his brother's one of the biggest yeah. bookers in Boston. So I was off to the races after that night. It was like boom, 
I was off to the races and working for Mike. And so anyway, um, yeah, I forget why I brought that up, but, uh, uh yeah. Well, it is amazing when you have oh, a small. In- we were young. Yeah, we were young. You're, you're young. I, I was, you're 25. I don't even know if I was 25, but yeah. But it's amazing that you can have, you know, a friend from high school in Greg Hill, right? That just asks you to do him this favor. And it just so happens that that's the day you're going to kill. And it's in front of Lenny Clark, who's got a brother that, you know, like it's those little itty bitty moments kismet serendipity like whatever word you want to use but it changes your whole trajectory i'll tell you something else that happened people say that be prepared you know luck is when preparedness meets whatever preparation opportunity meets preparation um that's actually that day was a great example of that because you know greg was my brother's friend he was older than me but he was working at V66 and we would see him on TV, like literally laying cable, like John Garavedian would be doing a V66 hit and you'd see Greg with his mullet, like crawling on the, and I'd go, that's right, it's Greg Eller, you know, our paper boy, as we used to say. Um, and and he, he kind of, when I look back on it now, he kind of opened up the world to me, like our friend is on TV, like what? So as he started to make it as, as on AAF, left V66 and started making an AAF, um, and then I knew when I started doing stand up and sketch, like, all right, you know, this, I, I did very little on purpose early in my career, but one of the things I did do was like, I'm going to get as good at this stuff as I can get so that when something like this does happen, I'm ready. And that's exactly what happened. And Greg said, Hey, do, you know, Greg saw that I was, I want I want an open mic night and I was working as a comic in Boston for a couple of years before that happened. And so I was ready, you know, um, I wasn't fully developed, but I had a great 10 minutes. You know what I mean? I had a great 10 minutes. And Just like any guy, you think you got a great 10 minutes. It was probably a good two and a half. It's exactly. <laughs> Let's extend it over the years. Um, but yeah, so he asked me that. And then the other thing that happened the night was Lenny saw me, hooked me up with his brother. Now I'm a working comic in Boston getting paid. And the old PD at WAF was there that day. And he said to Greg, I fucking love that kid. Who is, that's your comedian buddy? I love him. And that ended up being Rocco and Maddie later. So I, I was ready for the, for, the, for the game, you know? Well, if you're not ready for Drew Bledsoe to get hurt in the game, to bring back Tom Brady, like if you're not ready for your moment. Doesn't matter who you know at that point. No. Because, you know, especially, like I said, with stand-up, it's just you. (laughs) You know, and I talked to Lenny about it because Boston has always been one of those cities where just great comics always came from. And so you were trying to cut your way in at this time when the Boston comedy scene was so huge. I mean, tell me what that was like. Oh, I mean, it was like, it was, I had, you know, some of the greatest nights of my life. Nick's, Nick's comedy stop in Boston was one of my favorite. I used to do the bachelor parties, bachelorette parties. I kind of had a whole, I had a whole five minutes in my act just to deal with bachelorette parties. I would just kill, you know? And um, again, not a, not a fully developed comic. I didn't have a, a point of view really. I was learning how to, but I could kill on any given night, you know, and, and I I came up with guys like Gary Gullman. Uh, We became very good friends and we all know what he's gone and done. But it's funny, years later, um, I had Gary on, I had a, I had a show on this upstart, uh, an upstart network. It was on DirecTV. I had a daily studio show, talk show. 
on TV and I had Gary on as a guest and we had lunch and he goes, this, this is what you were meant to do. Like, and he, we were talking about comedy and he goes, when, whenever we had a night off, I was on stage. I was working my act. I was running comedy. You always talked about, I'm going to go film something. I want to do a sketch. I want to write something like you, you did stand up well, but this is what you're meant to do. And I was like, ah, you know, to, to define yourself and go, okay, he's right. Cause if I had a night off, I wasn't getting paid. I wasn't doing stand up, <laughs> you know? So that speaks to my lack of love of the craft. Like he had, um, not my lack of respect for the craft, but my lack of love. Oh, of no, doing but it, it. if you love what you do, you're willing to do it no matter what right. you're, you're willing to do it into a, in a room with two people That's and right. not get paid. That's right. It's the same thing with a musician. It's the same thing. It's like, if you're happy playing in your garage, That's right. Then you're, then you're a musician and that's what you're meant to do. That's right. Yeah. So, and then I, ha I had that love for other things, which I ended up doing, thank God. But yeah. So it was, it was. What do you think it is about Boston that generates these comics? Like, what is it? Because there's what I'm, what I'm seeing with the podcast, and this is why I ask, is that the podcast is in almost a hundred countries now and the podcast is spreading nationwide across the United States. And I know that there's audience that is finding the podcast just because they're finding the podcast and that they don't listen to it because of all my years at WAF. And there's a lot of people that listen to the podcast that have never been to Boston. So it's like, what is it about us? What is it about this place that generates such amazing stand-up comics? Because, you know, Lenny started listing them and it was like dozens yeah. of them. Yeah, I, th I think, I think it's kind of like Canada. I think it all comes from mother England originally. Like if you, you know, uh, the British sense of humor, that, that kind of, ability to be very cutting very quickly. Like I was reading a book about the revolution and some of the things that are the planning, the revolution, these satirical cartoons and things that they wrote are unbelievably funny, even for now. Um, and that kind of came from that dry wit in England. And, and then, so like you have a lot of comedians that are of British descent in Canada, Martin Short, Mike Myers, you know, that whole crew. And then they kind of bled down here to Boston or New England. And then generations later, you have to be very sharp, very quick. Um, and the audiences are tough in Boston. You know, it's a working class area. So I would go and out. I don't have time for bullshit here. Yeah. And I, I would go out west. Like Lenny actually set up a showcase for me with Mitzi Shore. I got to, you know, it's funny that that documentary came out about the comedy store. I got to do that. I, I auditioned for Mitzi Shore. I did the two minutes on a Tuesday night. I forget when she used to do it. And then check, I got passed on to the Thursday night and I did 15 minutes on a Thursday night for Mitzi in a showcase to see if I'd become a regular at the comedy store. So I got to like do all that. It was really cool. Lenny set that up for me. But um, I noticed out there, out West, besides the famous guys who probably came from somewhere like Boston or Toronto or New York, the LA comics were doing sketch on stage. They were doing character work. And I was like, oh, I'm going to destroy these guys. And I wasn't even a good Boston. I was like a middler Boston guy. You know what I mean? But I was like, I'm going to fucking kill these guys because I have jokes. So I think Boston taught you how to do it. And guys like Lenny and guys like Don Gavin and guys like, there was a guy, Dave Fitzgerald, who kind of took me under his wing. They would watch your set and go, yeah, you know, that's not really a joke. Do this. Set up punch, set up punch, set up punch. Oh, okay. So I think all of those factors, I think that our history, the toughness of the audiences, and then the comics themselves kind of not accepting mediocrity. LA, a guy would go up there and do like a character voice and everyone, all the other LA people going, you're awesome, because they're afraid he's going to get a show. Boston, 
I think fucking Lenny would, or you know, Mike Donovan would care if he thought I was going to get a shot. Like, yeah, your act sucks, kid. You know, it's just who we are. For anybody that doesn't know that much about stand-up comics and doesn't understand, you know, that just thinks Mitzi Shore is Polly's mom. As a comic, talk about how important Mitzi and the comedy store were to the entire industry. Because, I mean, you just talked about there's a documentary about it. It can't be understated, her importance. I, I missed, obviously, I'm not that old. I missed the whole Tonight Show Johnny Carson thing that comedians always say, if you got on Carson, you were a made man, right? So, Especially if he invited you to the couch. Right. Um, after your set. By the time I was coming around, the only thing you really had like that was probably getting passed at the Comedy Store by Mitzi Shore. If you got passed as a paid regular at the Comedy Store, you might not have been famous the next day like you were on Carson, but you were on the comedy map. If Mitzi liked you, you're on the comedy map. Now you're in the game, man. You've got a chance. So yeah, she was, she was very important. She was very important for a, a young upstart comic, no doubt. If you, if, and then it travels, like word travels fast in LA. Like I, it's funny, when I went to go to the first night, the two minute, you know, it's like the open mic night. I remember Tommy Davidson was hosting it, the African-American comic, real skinny. Um, his name's Tommy Davidson, I believe. Uh, yeah, I know who yeah, Tommy yeah, Davidson yeah. is. He was hosting it. And, and like he was on in living color. Yeah. 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 Uh huh. Yeah. He was hosting that night. And, the, and so you get two minutes, I think it was maybe two and a half. And then a, a light would go on and that's it. And he, he gave everyone the speech. So, so comedians, comedians literally would line up on the street and they put your name or a number, I forget in a, in a bingo barrel and roll it. And then they pull out comedian. And then if you're not on the list, try again tomorrow night. And comedians would like literally like wait out there all day to get their name early in that basket to maybe get the two minutes. So, and then they had to wait for the next time they did it. And people think two minutes isn't a long time, but when you work in radio, you work in stand up, you realize you can do a lot in two minutes. You can, uh, good and bad. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so, so Lenny had set that up for me that I was, I didn't have to put my name in the bin. He had made a call to somebody. So I went there and, and I start getting to the front of the line, which immediately puts me in a bad light. Right. Cause I got to talk to the guy and say, Hey, I'm, I'm Maddie Blake. I'm, friend of Lenny's it was set up so now they all hate me treated like shit you know just just awful I I did very well in the two minutes and as a matter of fact I was one of the last ones to go on I think I might have been the last one to go on and the light went on and Tommy Davidson was on the side and he went like this keep going like he gave me the keep going sign just keep going man because I I wasn't a true beginner at that point I was like you know I've been doing it a few years and I had jokes as I said and so uh that was when I went back Thursday night, I think it was a Thursday night to do the full set for Mitzi. Um, I was treated like I was a rock star. Like I was like, this is Lenny's friend from Boston. Hey, how are you? You I heard you great the other night. Da, da, da. And I was like, oh, these fucking people. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, these people. This is what they say about LA. And everyone's being wicked nice to me. You know, I'm like, all right. All it takes is that one little. And how important, and I bring it up because I talked to Kevin Martin from Candlebox and I met him years ago when Candlebox was on tour with Rush. And he talked about how Neil Peart would like sit on the side of the stage and watch their set every night on the tour and then give Candlebox tips about reorganizing their set list and what they needed to do and where songs needed to be in the set. And Kevin said in the interview, like, and Neil was obviously right. So talk to me about how important a mentor is 
and and being able here's the important thing i think being able to to humble yourself enough to take their criticism in anything it doesn't matter the the business that you're in to to be able to take constructive criticism from someone that obviously knows better than you okay so that's that's a definite weakness i had <laughs> not because i i didn't take criticism in like a I'm a cocky way, the opposite. Criticism crushed me. Um, so what I did was I did have guys that I would watch, guys I thought were funny, like Gullman, and then realize like his bar. Like so on any given night, I might crush at Nick's because I did my bachelorette party stuff. And it would be a just a melee. I would just crush. And then Gary would go up into his much better comedy, way better comedy. And people come up to me every day, you were awesome. Oh yeah, you're, and I'm just going like, oh, he was, he's so much better than me. You know what I mean? Like he's, and I knew it. So I would watch people like him and realize that the bar was up here. And then I would try to make my jokes more like his. Um, and then there was an old timer named Dave Fitzgerald who's passed away, unfortunately, he died of cancer. He was one of this, he's one of these Boston headliners who just, again, to your point, Boston seems to produce, they never got famous, but they can do an hour and a half of stand up and kill the and, room, right? And- and kill your abdomen because it just hurts from laughing so hard. He's just a pro, a true professional, and um, did cruise ships and all that. And um, he used to, he liked me for whatever reason. Oh, I, I opened for him early in my career and he liked me. And so he would get me on shows he did sometimes. And he would sit off the stage and he would, he had this great laugh. And he would go, ha ha, yes, almost like Ed McMahon. <laughs> and I started to notice my biggest killers, he was silent. And then if I had a new joke in there that was like a well-structured joke that maybe I didn't believe in, so I kind of half-assed it and it got like silence, he would go, ha ha, yes, well done. And I would, ooh, he liked that joke. So I would start my notebook and go, that's how you do a joke, right? So it's incredibly valuable. Um, I wish now going back, I had the ego that I have now <laughs> and I have an open mindset and I would take criticism. My God, I would beg for, but back then in my 20s, I was so scared someone was going to say something that would crush my damaged artist ego that I just kind of avoided that. But I learned by watching. And someone like Gary would never, Gullman would never say like, hey, kid, here's what you got to do. But when I asked him things, he would absolutely. And so it's, it's, it's crucial. If you don't take advantage of that, you hurt yourself. Well, I'm the same way, I think. I think there's a certain amount of anybody that's an extrovert that, you know, when you're able to kind of sneak past the armor and kind of poke the poke the squishy part that it that it hurts you know and it's like so whenever i would get whenever a consultant would come into town for the radio station oh. or whatever and sitting, sitting in i mean is there anything just more you literally just made me nauseous <laughs> is there anything more painful than an air check meeting which for anybody outside of radio that doesn't know you record your show every day and because I had no prior radio experience when Opie and Anthony got fired and they threw me on, I had air checks every day for months and months and months where you record your show and then the next day before you go on the air, you sit there with your boss and re-listen to your show, which A, is now out of context, right? Of and, and, and then they criticize the shit out of you. And then you got to leave there bruised and wounded and go back in the studio and find a way to do it all over again. And I, it, it was such a painful process to me that it, it literally gives me like itchy, palm, sweaty feelings today, right now. Yes. And I mean, it's it never goes away in a way because, you know, 
I know you hear like Conan O'Brien talk about his early days on TV. You know, there's notes, network notes, as they call them. So it's it's never it never goes away. But it's probably the death of creativity. You know, that type of scrutiny is very hard to have a creative environment. Um, I'd love to be a PD actually, just for a while, so I could do it the way I think <laughs> it should be done. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's very it can be very painful. You have to really have a lot of experience, I think, to handle something like that or maturity as an artist to be able to handle that stuff as, as I would handle it now. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, to go back to the, what we were talking about when we started talking, like when I became the music director and the assistant program director, part of that was my job was then working with the, the newer people and the part-time people. And, and I felt nothing but empathy because I remembered what it was like to be that green new person that made stupid mistakes and hit the wrong button and did all this stuff. And I was like, oh my God, this is so uncomfortable. It's, yeah, it's so hard. But you're right. It's, it's like, a, you know, my therapist once said to me. Um, You've become that person that quotes the therapist. I know. <laughs> I feel like a <laughs> Richard Lewis or something. Um, she said, you know, it's funny. You're one of your, one of my main things is, is self esteem issues, and I've picked a career where it's like the world can see me, <laughs> and and it's the very definition of my my childhood. There's a lot of things in my childhood that were like, look at me, everyone, so that as she said, so that they won't look at you, right? Look at me. I'm well. This is a very common trend with stand up comics is that they're emotionally tortured, damaged souls in a lot of ways. I mean, the track record of this behavior, it, it, it's a psychological thing. That's what you're talking about. Yes, it's, it's that yeah. It, that it comes from pain. It comes from torture. Yes, there was, there was a great old Sound Out Live sketch, the dysfunctional family feud, <laughs> when uh, Phil Hartman played like the dad, and he's going at it with the middle son who's played by, I think it was Christian Slater. And, um, and then at the, end of the, at the end of the row is Chris Farley, and he's the youngest son. And the, the father and son are fighting, and the Chris Farley's going, "Look at me, everyone!" And he's doing, you know, like his little Chris Farley dance that he does. And I'm like, "There's a lot of truth to that in, in me." And um, yeah, that's the best way I can say it. Look at me, everyone, so that no one takes a look at you. A look at you, right? right? Um, it's a show. It's it's. I'm way more comfortable. I would go up to, to right now with no prep. I would go in front of 10,000, 30,000, 50,000 people. And do like an Oak Island talk and not even maybe be like a little normally nervous that you would be, but I would do it no question. At a party with three people, five people, I just want to crawl out and die. Isn't that odd? Yeah, it's very strange. Isn't that odd? So that's the yeah. type of stuff that we carry. <laughs> Did you start going to therapy because of the restraining order from the Robinson brothers? Was that court <laughs> ordered? Is that why you had to start going? Because of your stalking issue with the Black Crows? <laughs> oh. Well, I, I, okay, so here's the one thing, and this ties in WAF, because we've talked about this. We used to, you and I used to talk about this when I was there, the Maddie and Nick years, is, is like street cred with, with, the, with the audience. And, and, you know, yes, I might golf, and yes, I'm a little preppier than your average AF person, but one thing that's true about me is my absolute love of, of rock and roll. I've loved rock and roll since. I was a child since I first, you know, my first memories are going into my brother and sister's rooms with their turntables. I would, I would trade rooms whenever my sister was going to go into hers, my older brother, I go into his, they had the records, headphones on 70s turntable and just crank rock and roll music. And 
I came alive as a human being. And so when you love a band like I love the Black Crows, um, I think the audience loved that. And, they, and some of them hated the Black Crows. Yeah. But they loved to talk about my love of the Black Crows and make fun well, of me. Any right? rock fan, any rock fan has that band right. that is the end all be all for them. And it doesn't matter, you know. I mean, for me in a grand scale, like people ask me, like, who would be a dream guest for you? And it's like, I want to interview a fucking Beatle. Yeah. Yeah. They are, they are the end all That's be it. all for me. It all ever. started if yeah, if you're gonna dig the archaeology of of you know, the fossils of rock and roll and where it all the cave drawings of rock and roll, to me, it's the Beatles. No doubt. No doubt. And, you know, but then there are those modern bands that are the bands that kind of grow up with you, that, that make an imprint on your soul for whatever reason. And you and I have always shared that love. I, I'm a little more reserved and less creepy about it. <laughs> but you and I have always shared a love and passion for the Black Crows. Always. That record came out. So I, I was aware of their first record, but I wasn't blown away by it. It was a fun. I'm like, oh, this is throwback shake your money yeah, make sure you're talking very about first, yeah. yeah and i go this is, a, this is a good record you know it's kind of rootsy and then i was in college and everything around i, I was struggling with these aforementioned body image issues and self-esteem issues i had a I had a girlfriend who ended up leaving me and i think deep down i knew she's leaving me it was, it was like tough times for maddie b and um everything around me it was like either really ballady bullshit or you know, kind of, uh, what do they call that? Like kind of rap metal type sound, uh, almost ska-ish. Like that was really big then. And the only music I had was like that old music I've been listening to since I was a kid. It was all it was all classic rock. And at a really low a point- A lot of it blues based. Yes. I mean, you talk about, you know, British comedians. There's also that British aesthetic where they took the, the blues from America to England chopped it up, regurgitated it, and it came out as the Stones, Zeppelin, all of these bands that they were like, well, this is the this is what American music did for us. Yes, ma'am. And and so that I remember the, I remember the day. It was like a lightning bolt. I was in this little sh crappy dorm and I was miserable and MTV World premiered Remedy. Yeah. Oh. And that video, oh my god, I might get emotional talking about it. They they they're dressed like the stones from the seventies and there was like a blue, it was like a green screen room, but it's like, I think it was blue in that one. And Rich is just playing that red guitar and he's got the crushed velvet suit and Chris is dancing around like a maniac. And I'm going, who? I, I literally, I remember like it was yesterday. It was like a religious. Still one of my favorite songs ah. ever. And, and, and then that album just became it for me. And then the breakup did happen. And I recommend for anyone out there who's not versus the crows like Carrie and I, uh, if you go through a breakup, check out Southern Harmony and Musical Companion and Amorica <laughs> and play those. Those, at those, those are my college years, oh, too. Yeah. That was it. And I can't even count how many times I went and saw those guys. I was a psycho like, oh, they're playing at the Worcester Auditorium. Oh, they're playing at the Orpheum. Oh, they're playing up in New Hampshire. Oh, they're playing out in Springfield. Like those few years, it was like all I wanted to do was listen to Southern Harmony and go and see the Black Crows and that album is one of my, you know, Deserted Island albums. You know, that it's such an old question now. Like, if you could only have five albums on a Deserted Island, what would they be? And that would be one of them for me. Yeah, that record. And they just, they just, and you know what's funny? Uh, years later, 
they they kind of saved me in a way. And then someone once said about the Black Crows on one of these fan nerd Black Crow sites that I spend too much time on. That you're not supposed to be in per the restraining <laughs> yes. order. They said the Crows were our stones. The stones were our older brothers band. We got our band, we got our stones. I'm like, that is the truest thing. Cause I grew with them, you know, and then when I was in my thirties, yeah. Chris and Rich were writing songs about their divorces. Not that I got divorced, but you know what I mean? And then yeah. being fathers and then the magpie salute, which was Rich's solo effort, who we had on your show. Um, and you let me sit in. I became like buddies with like, so Sven Pippi and the bassist of the black crows, like a guy that same thing with you. I went and saw a hundred times as a fan. You know, and you understand this better than anyone befriending all the bands and musicians that you have. But like, I, I went to go see them. I was on vacation in Florida. And the Magpie Salute was playing at some crappy theater in Florida. And I went and they're in their first song. And like, Rich Robinson sees me and goes like, gives me one of these like, hey man. And then Sven Vipian's literally singing like high harmony and looks down and he goes, mulls the words. He goes, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm friends with the Magpie Salute. And, and you know, the lead singer, John Hogg and I became buddies. And we talk to this day, you know, through Instagram messenger and stuff. He's in England, but um, so what a cool, I mean, if you had told me that in college and then I got to interview Chris and Rich the same summer before the Crows have gotten back together like they did uh, the last year of Maddie and Nick, they both came through Boston separately. I got to interview Rich with you and a few phoners too on Maddie and Nick. And then I got to sit down with Chris. We talked for like an hour and a half. Um, when the band, <clears throat> when the band announced they were getting back together, you were the first person I right. texted that's when right. I got the inside oh, info right. that they were going to tour. I was like, Hey, that's right. Don't fucking tell anybody. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And you got me tickets and I was doing something for Oak Island and couldn't go. But uh, yeah. yeah, I've seen those guys perform. I mean, yeah, dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And yeah, that's my band. That's, that's, I just love them. I just love them. Did you hear the new song? The new I old did. Song? The new old song. I liked it. You know what yeah. it sounds like? It sounds like Hot Legs by Rod yeah. Stewart. It has the same little... Yeah. I love it. It's great. It's, it's, yeah. it's quintessentially that album, right? Simple, straight ahead. Well, it's a leftover from um, the first record, the Shake Your Money Maker record. It's called Charming Mess, and they ju they're doing a 30th anniversary reissue, and so they release the song, and it's so weird to hear because you know it's from that era, so like it feels like the early 90s. Yes. It has that texture yes. about it. And The ticket you got me, by the way, is to, so that everyone doesn't think I'm, I'm making stuff up, um, it wasn't – the Crows Union didn't happen because I got – like second row tickets to that. That was no, stuff by like COVID. The, this is their um, Birds of a Feather. The, the Birds of a yeah, Feather, yeah, yeah. which me, Mike Shu, yep. that was the week that we found out AAF was going off. That's the air. right. And I was in uh, I was in Canada. It was the Wednesday night before the last two shows on AAF. Yeah. I had seen them do Birds of a Feather, so I wasn't completely crushed, but I would have loved to see them with you. Um, but like I said, Canada, yeah, I was doing my Because Mike Shu is always a big Black yes. Rose fan as well. Yep. And, and it was so, you know, that's, that's the second to the last concert I saw last year. Um, and I just remember being in the Brighton Music Hall, which is a really super small place, and knowing that in a couple days AAF was going to be gone, and watching the Robinson Brothers acoustic and standing there with my arm around shoe Ugh. and like us drinking beers and singing, like it literally tears me up to this because everybody from you know the radio station was there, and not only that, but all the other rock stations. 
you know, we all got tickets. And so, you know, there were people that used to work at AAF, like Adam, that had moved on and, and gone someplace else. And so in that moment, we were all able to kind of be in this little club watching those guys. And it just, you know, obviously then knowing, oh. you know, how hard the next couple of days were going to be to send the station off. It's like that those couple hours, that distraction of watching the Robinson brothers together on stage was like, oh. Just it felt so good. Yeah, can you? That's just that's the power of music, and those when those two sing close harmony, it's like forget about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I forget who it was that said it, but they talked about how there's a certain harmony that can only be reached by brothers. Chris, Chris talks about that a lot. He says there's something there's an alchemy between two brothers' voices in particular, like. When I went and interviewed Chris, he was with a guy named Neil Casal, who unfortunately uh, committed suicide. Um, and, and that was Chris's band, the Chris Robinson Brotherhood, which is a very trippy, you know. But they sang Close Harmony together, and it was beautiful. And then in that interview with me, I think it was, I think it was actually back before we started, or after we were done the official interview, he was talking about, I said, boy, you and Neil sound great together. He goes, yeah. And then he, go, and then he goes, yeah, there's something about brothers, though. And I said, yeah. And I was like, oh my God, because I was told not to bring up Rich. So he mentions that a lot. He, he you know, th- there's an alchemy between brothers' voices. Yes. It's so funny because when you, people don't realize it, that when you set up interviews with people, sometimes their handlers, their management, the record label will say, look, you know, they really don't want to focus on this. Can you not, you know, if they're going through a very public divorce, can you just not bring that up? Can you, and it's like, you know, okay. And then as the interviewer, you're sitting there and then they, the, the person brings up the stuff that you were told. And now you're in this place where you're like, I'm walking through this motherfucking door. Cause he opened it. Yes. Rich did that to me on the first phoner. He, he, you know, they kind of said, look, he wants to talk about magpie. I said, listen, I'm having him on cause I'm a fan of this band. Like, don't worry about it. We don't have the top crows at all. And I think three questions in, he was like, well, look, I mean, everyone knows that Chris and I don't talk anymore. And I'm like, so then I was off to the races. I'm like, all right, he brought it up. So I was like, well, speaking of that, and then I asked a million questions about that. But yeah, they give you the opportunity sometimes, the artists themselves. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and you're like, and you're looking at the handlers going. <laughs> Sorry. I'm going, I'm going over here now. <laughs> Sorry. He brought it up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what, I, I want to talk about. You know, you you brought it up earlier about how there was always this video stuff, how there was always all of this other creative stuff that you always wanted to do. And one of the things, speaking of busting your balls about stuff, one of the things I've always made fun of you about is all of your paranormal conspiracy theory, you know, monster land, Bigfoot. Anytime I see anything about UFOs or Sasquatches, or orbs or ghosts or anything, I immediately, A, think of you and B, either tweet to you about it or text you about it because I'm like, Maddie, this is all you. And one of the things that happened in 2020 is that basically the Pentagon declassified those fighter jet videos and basically acknowledged that, and this is how fucked up 2020 is, that the Pentagon acknowledged the existence of UFOs and like nobody's even talking about it because the year was so crazy. But you were one of the first people I thought of. Now, I've always been open to like, you know, I think aliens are real. I'm not a spiritual person the way that you are. You've taken this to a whole other level when it comes to 
paranormal stuff and all of that. And one of the things that I find really interesting about it is that in a lot of ways, people would think that that goes totally against all of your spiritual beliefs because you are such a spiritual guy. You would think, unless, you know, at a certain point it becomes semantics, because if you look at, say, the Christian faith, which I happen to be Christian, like, if you read New Testament stories, what have we got? We've got people rising from the dead. We've got angels ascending from heaven and going back up in heaven. We've got people seeing bright lights falling on the ground, burned afterwards, blinded after seeing these people appear from them. Coming back to life after death. Exactly. So that's supernatural. That's so to me, if the way I look at it is if any of this stuff is real, it could all be real, right? If we can, if, if, if anything that we can't explain that people tend to poo-poo turns out to be real, then all bets are off. For me, it increases my faith. It increases my faith that there are things that we can't explain that happen behind the veil. Because if there's bad, there's probably good. And if there's good, there's probably bad, right? See, now I always thought that it was the organized religions of the world that were trying to squash it. The way the tobacco companies always wanted to squash wheat because they knew it would compete. So I always looked at the big organized religions of the world not wanting to give credence to UFOs or anything because it would undermine what the facts, quote unquote facts, that they have always pursued. That the, old, the, the world is this old, that this God is there. And all of a sudden, if you, if you talk about that the, the world is older, that there are aliens, right. it, it blows apart their theories of what the world is. I would say that's partly true. I mean, I mean <clears throat> certainly they want you to subscribe to their Right, the supernatural stuff that fits in their theology and their language, no doubt. But I think, which like, is, which is control and money. I mean, there's right, always right, right, there's right, there's reasons behind right. it. But thinking, like thinking Christians, for example, embrace science. There's nothing in science that would preclude my Christian beliefs. In fact, again, it increases it. Um, I think the loudest ones are the ones, the ones we hear, are the ones that say the Earth is six thousand years old. Um, unfortunately, but you know. Christianity was it was a search for you know the Jesuits were like founded science pretty much trying to figure out the stars you know like let's build tell let's because if because if there's a God there's order to this stuff if there's no God then boy we're getting deep here if this I knew I knew it was coming. if there's no God then all everything we have randomly fell together you know like that old analogy of of the factory exploding. And when everything falls, it's Mozart's symphony falls together, you know, the perfect symphony. It's like, so that's what you're, so to prove that there's order to it, to me, even evolution, that, that to me does not affect my Christianity at all. You know, now you're right, through the millennia, men have tried to withhold and suppress that stuff, no doubt about that. But for me, it all increases my faith, anything from, from UFOs to Bigfoot, because it's like, wow, there's a world we don't understand. The Bible says it, uh, we, we struggle against principalities and powers that we can't see, you know, um, and I do believe that. And it's something that is not just a hobby. It's something that you pursue. Um, you know, you've got this rated P for paranormal yeah. podcast, yes. which you've gone in deep on now. Yeah, I love it. It's a perfect And mix. obviously Oak Island is part of this. I mean, it's not Sasquatch, but it's, conspiracy and there's so much 
going on surrounding it. Yeah, Oak Island, this is a good lesson too, if anyone happens to be listening that is like, wants to get into the business and is young maybe. Um, Cause for years I hid these passions of mine, uh, this part of my life. Like I talk, I love sports. I love the black crows, whatever it is. I love golf, whatever. Yeah. But if you sit down at a bar and start telling your buddies, you believe in Bigfoot. Right. I was. Shit gets weird. Right. Especially back then. So I was always careful, especially professionally. Like I would never, And then at a certain point, because of some self-development work we've mentioned earlier and some therapy and stuff, I started saying like, this is who I am. I love to talk about UFOs, let's say, for example, or ghosts. And I started telling my story out. And as fate would have it, a producer I worked for in my New York City years on another job for VH1 actually, doing some hosting work for VH1, was asked to work on Oak Island. And he remembered me talking his ear off all those nights that we hung out together on, after working or traveling together about UFOs and mysteries and all that type of stuff. So one of the requirements of the job on Oak Island was whoever this host is, we prefer they be into the mysteries of the world, the unexplained maybe. This is a mystery. This is a treasure hunt, but it's also got a lot of ethereal parts to it. So he thought of me right away. He was like, oh, Matty Blake, the guy who did our VH1 stuff, try him. And I was up against some names. There were some names that they wanted to have do this show to host this extra content, Oak Island stuff. And, but I swear to God, Carrie, it was only because of my passion for the material and the fact that I was public with it to somebody. And then they remembered that like, oh, Matty's wicked into this stuff. Cause as the late Kevin Burns who hired me said, um, it wouldn't have worked if you weren't really into this stuff. It just wouldn't have worked. Well, it's just like with WAF, like you were talking about. If you worked at AAF and didn't love rock Amen. music and tried to go on the air like and talk about it and act like you loved it, but you really didn't, we're doing it for the paycheck, the audience would have torn you to shreds and spit you out. Because you can, people that are passionate about something can tell when you're not that's it and like i said there's a lot of af fans at black crows it's like milk toast to them but they love that i love them they love to hate that i love them and they love to make fun of you know and they, they've got their pantera whoever it is right yeah so th that's yeah. it it's it doesn't, doesn't matter who the band was right. it was it was that they could align themselves with you because you you know there's something to be said about shouting from the rooftop about how much you love something even if you don't love that, you have to respect that the person is so willing to be like, hey, fuck everybody. I love this and I'm into it's infectious. it. infectious. And when I'm, when I'm on yeah. Oak Island, people say like a common thing I hear from fans like Maddie's enthusiasm. I'm like, but that's just because to me, I don't see how a human being could go on Oak Island and like learn about this mystery and then learn about some of the weird stuff that's happening and just not be like, what the fuck is going on? You know okay. I mean? So for anybody that doesn't know anything about Oak Island, I know a little bit just cause I worked with you all those years. Give me the background on Oak Island. What is going on on Oak Island for someone that doesn't watch the show, that doesn't understand? Okay, I'm really good at doing this very quickly because it's a long story, but I've done this a million times now. Somebody, a long time ago, we don't know who, we don't know what, we don't know why they did it, and we don't quite know when they did it. Somebody built an underground chambered vault system on an island in Nova Scotia, Canada to hide something. The theories range from pirate treasure to the works of the secret works of William Shakespeare, really written by Sir Francis Bacon, to ancient knowledge manuscripts, 
to perhaps uh, the menorah from the Bible, to perhaps the chalice from the Bible that Christ drank from, Christ drank from. Um, so there's different theories, and nobody knows quite what it was, but the show, The Curse of Oak Island, follows the most recent effort to find out what was buried on this island and who did it. Because these, these chambers are so old that the effort, w- it wouldn't have been just a hobby that somebody felt like digging chambers. Like back then, the amount of effort required to dig those chambers would have been for something important. It wouldn't have just been for shits and giggles. Correct. Nobody would do this. I mean, you're talking massive works at 160, 180, down to even maybe 200 plus feet. So yeah, no. Without the, Without the technology to make that easy. Crazy. Now, what's complicated this there's a lot of factors that have complicated it, but one of the things, it's, it's been going on for over 225 years, this treasure hunt. So searcher efforts have made it a mess down there. So this team's down there pulling up beams that are you know, 18th century, but it's searchers down there trying to build tunnels to get into where they believe the treasure is. So it's a mess down there. So it's a very long and complicated and expensive process. And... Uh, my job was to come on the show that already existed as it got more and more popular by its third season um, and kind of be an embedded journalist, if you will, like go on the island, spend time on the island, and then interview the searchers, explain it to people like you who are just joining the show, recap. You know, it's an extra content show. And now that show has grown to be so wildly successful. Oh, Curse of Oak Island is the number one rated non-scripted show on cable with a bullet it kills everything um and now it's gotten so big we have a spin-off show that i'm co-hosting with the two stars of the show rick and marty lagina called beyond oak island and in that show we look at treasure mysteries around the world like other oak islands if you will and people come and present to the brothers their story and then we try to investigate and see if there's anything to it or at least explore those mysteries and that's been unbelievable where do people get the money to do this kind of stuff? Because they were obviously investigating Oak Island before the TV show. It's like once you get the TV show up, the TV show makes money, you get money to continue the efforts, but you have to put the money in in the beginning to start the excavation and start the hunt. Is this just a, an expensive hobby for these guys? It, it was. For these two brothers, Rick and Marty Lagina from Michigan, it was a childhood dream. And they used their own financial means to do it before the TV cameras came. They were just like, we're doing this. And before that, historically, though, to answer your question, you'd have to fundraise, basically. You'd have to form these companies, the Truro Company, um, these treasure hunting companies, basically. And you have to kind of provide them evidence or clues and go to a group of wealthy men, as it were, and say, we're digging for treasure on Oak Island. Please invest. It's going to cost us this much to do that. So that was the history of the island. Groups of people getting together and raising money, basically, and then try to find this thing. And now the brothers have come, and they, they were doing it for, uh, I think, a, a year or two before the cameras started rolling. They said no to the late Kevin Burns, the executive producer and creator of The Curse of Oak Island. He was lobbying them, like, look, do this show. It'll be great. And they were like, no, we're not TV guys. This is just two brothers doing their thing. And he finally convinced them to do it, and it's, and it's been a smash. Some people would question why a company would sponsor something like this, but there have been so many shipwrecks. I mean, the discovery of the Titanic, that you have to fund this stuff. But if it turns out to be true, 
the amount of money that can be generated by, I mean, you guys sent Stiz to Vegas and he went to the Titanic exhibit at the Luxor and there's, and I went to at a later date and there's this huge piece of the Titanic that broke off because of the iceberg. And it says, don't fucking touch it, assholes. I mean, it is, you know what I mean? And, and, and Stiz comes back from Vegas and he's like, I touched the it's Titanic. It's unbelievable. Uh, they're literally like, it's a sacred burial place. <laughs> it's just, Yo, I touched the Titanic. I touched Daddy. the Titanic. Oh my God. He's the but, but what I bring it up because, you know, you, Money is constantly being generated by the dis- the rediscovery of the Titanic, and and you know if any of these treasure hunts turn out to be true, and you discover what would be b- billions and possibly trillions of dollars in gold and antiques and all of this stuff, never mind you know, the chalice that Christ drank out of, like the money that would. So there's a certain it's it's no more of a gamble than buying a Mega Millions ticket, really. That's right. If you got the money, that's right. Um- so yeah, it could be, it could be, you know, people always say like, well, one, one of the things is it could be the Ark of the Covenant. That's what some people believe. <clears throat> and someone said, well, if they find something like that, then the show is over. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's 10 more seasons. If this team finds the Ark of the Covenant, that's 10 more seasons. That's a lifetime of television. That's a channel. Yes, that's a channel. Thank you. It's a whole uh-huh. channel. That's it. Who discovered the tunnel system first? So the, the, the legend of Oak Island is in 1795. Uh, a guy named William McGinnis and his friends, um, the, the island had been rumored to have weird stuff going on it. As the story goes, they saw anomalous lights on the island, rode their boat to it, and found a fresh depression in the ground with a ship's tackle rope broken off and pulley system right above the fresh depression. They dug, they got 10 feet, they found wooden platforms, clearly man-made. They dug exactly another 10 feet wooden platforms, and so on. Every 10 feet, exactly, wooden platforms. Along the way, they discovered things. They found um, little pieces of chain, things that indicated definitely someone was here, right, at depth. And at 90 feet, and by the way, this goes back to your earlier question, this took about 10 years to get to 90 feet. This didn't happen in one night. Um, They found what's called the 90-foot stone, and it was a rather large rectangle stone with weird writing on it. They've described it as have, almost looking like ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics on it. And code breakers at the time tried to break what it said, and people have debated what it said. Um, but they breached that stone, and when they breached that stone, it flooded. And they're like, how can it be flooding this far inland? Uh, on the island, I mean. They're still on the island. And what they've discovered over the years is that there seems to be, and this team, I believe, has proven this beyond any reasonable doubt to me, that there was a fingered box drain system built on what's called Smith's Cove side of the island that floods that tunnel when you breach it, when you get too deep, when you dig too deep, it floods it with, with seawater. So To cover up whatever was down there. So, and, and is that stone still around? No, it, so it's disappeared to history. Although last season, uh, one of the searchers, Doug Kroll, believes he either found it or he found uh, there's they, they displayed it in a Halifax book bindery for a time. And he believed, if I remember this correctly, that that might have been a replica stone. And one of the rumors of the stone was that one of these early searchers actually put it in his hearth of his fireplace. As a, and would invite people to come see it. Look at this. This is the 90-foot stone from Oak Island. And it's been lost to history since then. 
a couple seasons ago, Doug Kroll found a stone in that same book depository or book bindery and dragged it out. And it had the similar dimensions to what the 90 foot stone might have been. He's concluded for reasons that are too long to go into here that this was probably a replica that they put on display, that it might not have been the original 90 foot stone because there was no real writing that we could perceive on the, although it was flattened, like it looked like it could have writing on it. It's just so marked up over the years that it was, it was worn down, if you will. Um, so it was inconclusive, but it's somewhere, you know, I kind of believe someone has it somewhere and might not even know it. What do you think is buried in there if, if something is? Like, what do you think that the tunnels were dug for? I definitely don't. Or what do you, what do you hope they, they, that they discover? Yeah, I think, I think, I think, well, my hope is that they just, they just find out what happened because even if they don't get rich off treasure and everything, like, well, that'd be nice for everyone. I love everyone involved with the show, but who knows, you know, when it comes to that stuff. I just want them to, to find out what happened so that they can say like, we set out to figure Oak Island mystery out and we did, whether that involves money or not or treasure or not. I have come to the same conclusion as many others now that it, it's, not, it's not just gold and silver and rubies and treasure. That might be buried there and people might have buried that there over the years. But I think the extent of works that have been done and the age the time frame of some of the things that this team has been pulling out speaks to either secret knowledge or one of the great historical artifacts that we've talked about before, we've mentioned before. Um, you know, I, I, I wear this cross, this replica of a cross they found on a beach, a metal detector named Gary Drayton. I'm holding it up for you now. Uh, our podcast yeah. listeners can't see it, but um, it's a lead cross and it's of Templar origin. <laughs> Um, and they found it on yeah, Oak Island? Yeah, the design and, and the lead it was made from comes from a quarry in the 14th century uh, in Dome, France, where Knights Templar were imprisoned. And this cross is carved into a prison wall in Dome, France. And they found this on an island in North America, rumored to have something buried on it. So to me, it's, I believe it's a religious artifact of some kind. And I won't, I won't say what, but I, I do believe that. You talked about the the people originally that said they were, you know, Oak Island was always rumored to have like weird things. And I, I've never been someone that is closed to, to any of these notions. I, I look at humans as being glorified chimpanzees that we're literally like two steps away from smearing our own shit on the walls. Right. And so the idea that I, in the vastness of space that we are the only quote unquote intelligent light, like those things just make me laugh. Whatever your religious or spiritual beliefs, it just, I refuse to be so elitist to think that we are the only things out there that know what the hell is going on. And so I've always been open to the, you know, UFOs especially, and just open to it. I'm not somebody that goes UFO hunting, but I'm always open to it. But I had an experience when I went to Iraq in 2006 um, that was very strange for me, especially as a person that doesn't consider herself very spiritual. In southern Iraq, um, outside of Talil Air Base, which was an Iraqi air base back in the day, outside of Talil Air Base, there's a place called the Ziggurat of Ur that you can Google. 
And uh, I know friends that went to architecture school that when they found out that I went to the ziggurat of Ur, they were they were like, what do you mean? The ziggurat of Ur is 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 basically a pyramid with a flat top. So it doesn't have the point at the top. And it's got this big giant staircase. It, it's kind of a cross between like an Aztec temple and, and pyramids. And it's as old as the pyramids in Egypt. And this area around the ziggurat was discovered in the 20s by British archaeologists because it had been buried from these massive sandstorms that they have because the the southern part of Iraq is very desert-like, how people would think most of the country is, although the further north you get, the more lush and vegetation, the cradle of civilization, the Tigris, the Euphrates, all of that. But in southern Iraq, it's a lot of desert and it's flat and whatever. And I got taken by some some special operators who's to this day, I still don't know the real name. So my producer, Combat Joe, and I referred them um, as Casper and the Chameleon because we were never allowed to know who they were. Um, but they took us there and they had worked out a private tour with an, an Iraqi guy whose father or grandfather was there in the 20s with the archaeologists when they discovered this. This guy's family had been there for like 300 years. I have to dig out the audio because I recorded the tour and you can barely understand him, but he spoke English and took me on this tour. The reason why I bring it up is the area around the ziggurat of Ur is where Abraham lived. And they took me to his house and I stood in the house of Abraham, like where Abraham, according to the history books, the Abraham from all of the organized religions, that guy, I stood in his house and have pictures in front of the stone archways that not only have they excavated, but they've been able to do some repair work to keep them from continuing to crumble. And it's out in the middle of nowhere. And I bring it up and I, I tell you this long-winded story because as a cynic, when I got there and watched the sunset there, and it, it's funny because Casper and the chameleon had to go into the tombs because the ziggurat had high ground overlooking the airbase, and so there would always be insurgents there, knowing what a historically significant place this was, that they would go there to try and kidnap Westerners and take hostages in the war. And I remember standing there and not feeling right, not bad, just off, that there was something in the air there, that there was something in this place. And what's really funny is that my tour guide said to me that the Pope, and he meant John Paul Jones, I mean, uh, John Paul II, John Paul Jones, the Pope from Led Zeppelin, but, but Pope John Paul II had put in a request with Saddam Hussein back in the day to make a pilgrimage to the ziggurat and to the house of Abraham. And basically Saddam Hussein had said, uh, you can come here, but I'm not going to protect you. And so the Pope never made the pilgrimage because it wasn't safe for him. And I remember having this feeling of standing there, knowing that I was the purple-haired DJ from Boston, was standing in a place that the Pope, arguably one of the most powerful and well-protected humans on the planet, had, had requested to go and never went. And I just remember standing there, and something in the air was weird there. And it had a profound effect on me in a way that very few other places have. And I don't know why. 
I don't know if it was the tombs that were there and the people that were there. I don't know if it was just the energy in a place that you know is thousands and thousands of years old or the historical significance of the ziggurat and obviously the house of Abraham. I don't know what it was, but that feeling I will never forget. It was profound for me. And I know that people are going to listen to this and they're going to Google the ziggurat. And I have all these amazing pictures of me standing on the top at sunset and Abraham's house. And, you know, like I said, pictures with the tour guide and who whose picture I wasn't allowed to post at the time. He, he let me take some pictures, but the SOCOM guys were like, you are not allowed to put this guy's because he'll be killed if, if he is found to be cooperating with the Westerners and the Americans that were there. So I have this understanding when you talk as, you know, as crazy as some people might think you are being so open to this paranormal discovery and all of this stuff. I think everyone, regardless of their religion and how cynical they claim to be, has gone to a place, a haunted house, a cemetery, you know, a field, a battleground from a revolutionary war battle or whatever, and had that weird something is off here in the energy and the place and nobody can really understand why they feel that way and you're the guy that wants to do the work to figure it out first of all thank god stiz didn't go there because he would have touched this yo i smoked a cigarette in the cigarette bro. <laughs> um yeah for anybody yeah for anybody that's googling it it's Ur, Ur. just you are ziggurat of Ur. he would have called, called it ziggurat of Ur. <laughs> I fucking Yo, love Stiz. I miss him so much. Um, Yo! Look at me. I took a selfie in Abraham's kitchen. <laughs> um, that's an incredible story. And yes, and, and Oak Island is one of those places. It just feels, you know, as I say, I don't know what it is, but it ain't nothing. <laughs> you right. know, you could explain it scientifically. You could say Oak's one of those places or where you were is one of those places that has, um, you know, it's in that electromagnetic force field that earth has and things are weird however you want to explain it fine but it ain't nothing because i feel it oak oak you feel like you're being watched a lot of times to me um you know there have been people that that have seen you know floating black masses on oak island figures um there's been voices people have been told things heard voices um a girl named peggy adams in the 40s saw ran to her dad, who was a caretaker of Oak Island at the time, screaming and carrying on that these soldiers in uh, red outfits were, you know, coming on the beach at Smith's Cove in these big ships. And and she had no historical context for British redcoats and um, saw them all coming on to Smith's Cove. Father ran down, nobody there, of course. It's a, n- nothing. It's in, the, it's in the 40s. And then, uh, well, this was, uh, yeah, 1940s, yes. And um, and she saw a picture of British redcoats later at some point, according to the legend, said, that's what I saw. Now, this team has found evidence of a British military encampment uh, right near where she saw the British invading. So, yeah, it's like uh, there's tons of stories like that. I mean, the show is called The Curse of Oak Island. And one of the legends is there's a curse involved with finding whatever it is that may be down there. So, yeah, it's one of those places. It's really interesting, and I, I love the idea of it. I just could never be the person that spent every penny that I have in all that. Now, I've been to Nova Scotia, and I went in the middle of August when it's like the warmest it can be. And just Nova Scotia alone has a vibe to it. 
you feel so remote that the landscape is so difficult but difficult in a beautiful way the rock ledges the the winds coming off the ocean it you have to be a a, a hard person to choose to live there because it's difficult but it is so majestically beautiful that and there's there's a the Cabot Trail up in Cape Breton um, is one of, if you Google it, one of the 10 most scenic motorcycle rides in the world, which is why I went. And we rode the Cabot Trail on motorcycles. And it was, anybody that has a bike, put it on your bucket list. It's unbelievable. So I already think of Nova Scotia as being a kind of place that would have a little bit of that mystique just because it's just such a hard climate, a hard place. And you go there and you feel old in a way. It's 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 very old world feeling because it is so remote and so hard. Yeah, it's rugged. And there's a lot of history there. Yeah. And it was kind of a gateway to Europe. You know, when you think about people coming over, that's kind of the first thing you're going to hit, right? If you look, after draw... Months, after months yeah. at sea uh -huh. that you finally see land. Uh -huh. um, if you're a motorcycle person, like you just said, and you also happen to golf, throw your clubs on the back of your motorcycle because uh, there's also Cabot Lynx golf course right on that Cabot trail. That's one of the most gorgeous golf resorts uh, anywhere in the world, right on the cliffs. Nova well, Nova Scotia means New Scotland right. for anybody that doesn't know. And it is very reminiscent of the, I mean, that's why they named it that because it, it is very reminiscent of yeah. Scotland, that town, which the, obviously is where golf. That's right. The from. town is actually called Inverness which is there's an Inverness, Scotland, where they play a British Open. So, yeah, it's really cool. It's it's a beautiful, you're right, it's gorgeous, but it's cold. Like, I've had some real tough shoots. And it's also alternately really hot. So it's extreme. You know, I've, I've had shoots, like, standing in the swamp on Oak Island where it's been, you know, like 110 and there's no breeze and the sun is just beating down on the muck. I'm sunburnt. I'm wearing khakis and a flannel and I'm just dying. And the mosquitoes. Yeah, it's are awful. On a whole and other then level. in the winter, I've yeah. stood on that causeway when the wind's whipping off the North Atlantic, and it's as cold as I've ever been, man. So it's a, it's you know it's not always easy, but it's so it's the greatest job you as a person like me could ever want. And then you and then you you have been, have been doing this podcast, podcast which is, which is a, whole a whole other level of conspiracy supernatural. So tell me about the rated p for paranormal podcast so i do it with a guy named anthony arkin he is alan arkin's son uh he's a filmmaker and actor that i met in my new york city years we remain friends ever since and what we do is the podcast is kind of split into half and we in the front half we talk about paranormal stuff in the second half we review a paranormal film or television show so we take paranormal as it appears in pop culture and we analyze it and rate, it, rate and review it. And whatever paranormal topic that that particular film might deal in, that's where we, in the front half of the podcast, talk about whatever that issue is. And, and then in the second half, we talk about how that film portrays it, what the film was like, what our thoughts so are. So it could be witches, sorcery, ghosts, exactly. UFOs, vampires, UFOs, Everything. Whatever. So like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we did The Witch, that horror film by Robert Eggers, uh, New England guy, actually. We reviewed that. We talked about witchcraft and witches and spells and all that stuff. So it's fun. If you like paranormal, spooky, unexplained stuff and you love pop culture, it's like we try to mix those worlds. Because there's a lot of paranormal podcasts out there. There's a lot of horror movie podcasts out there. But I couldn't find one that kind of broad brushed did 
paranormal pop culture and reviewed it like we do. So I, I love it. It's called Rated P for Paranormal. It's so fun. Um, check it out if you're so inclined. I'm one, of those I'm one of those girls that's fascinated with vampires. Yes. Not the sparkly, Not the sparkly ones. That, like the, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. But one of the but things, things that, I, that I, I'm not big on um, New, Year's New Year's resolutions at all, but I, I spend so much time in front of screens mm -hmm. now, not only here in MCHQ in my studio, but just constantly with the phone and the laptop and all of that stuff. And as you know, inside a radio station, whatever it is, there's just screens everywhere. So I told myself that I was going to try and read more from an actual book to give my eyes a break, to shut the gadgets off, to just kind of be able to find that meditative place that you find because I, I, I can't sit still. And so I started watching that show called The Discovery of Witches. And um, it's based on a trilogy of books by this woman who is a, she's a professor at, um, in California like a history professor or something. And she wrote this trilogy of books called a, a discovery of witches. And it's all about vampires, witches and demons, but woven through actual world history, specifically um, Elizabethan England. And, and a lot of the characters in the books are real people that are woven like Christopher Marlowe and all of these. And, and so each book, so I order them right at the end of last year. And I get them because I started watching the TV show because the, the vampire on the show is hot. And, and I get the books and there's three of them and they're all over 700 pages. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, this is not a, a romance novel book. These are, these are big, meaty books, right? And I started reading them, the first book on New Year's Day. And all of three of them I've finished already. I finished all three of them in the first three weeks of the year. Yeah. Yeah, I finished them all already. 700 pages for each book. And I read all three of them already. Not only because I love the story and it's fascinating and, and it, there's so much actual real history in it that in the back of the book, it tells you which characters in the book were actual real people and which ones weren't. And there's so many of them that were actually real people but I got addicted to the idea of turning off the TV and turning off my laptop and putting my phone down and just sitting with a book. And like, you know, when you binge something on Netflix and then it's over and you have that feeling, I have that now because it's over. And the second season of the TV show is on like Sundance and whatever. Now you can Google a discovery of witches. And um, now it's like I'm waiting for these episodes for the second season, which is the second book. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's it's really cool. Like the witch in it um, is a descendant of the first witch that was executed in Salem. Oh, witch wow. Trials. Okay, yeah. So and so there's a lot yeah. of, and she was raised in Cambridge. And so there's a lot of Massachusetts historical references. And then there's a lot of European historical references and, and war and you know, it's, it's really, really interesting. And now I'm like, fuck, I finished the books. Now yeah, what? Yeah. Yeah. That's the hard part. That movie, the witch, uh, I thought was just such incredible, like for a first time filmmaker and what's you talk about history, like that Robert Eggers, he uses dialogue in that movie from the witch trials. Like, so a lot of the dialogue, actually all the dialogues authentic. Some of it is actual from records of the day which makes it more terrifying when you realize that that's how they talk they oh really my happen. god yeah. yeah and um 
that's a great movie. So that's and I, that's what I love about the podcast too. Is Tony Anthony grew up on sets. You know, his father Alan Arkin is a legendary actor, and so Tony grew up on his dad's sets. Nobody knows movies like my partner Tony Arkin, so like he can really dive deep if you're into film and television on that aspect of it. And I'm kind of more the paranormal guy, even though I love film. So it's it's fun to kind of like learn stuff together about these Alan things. Arkin. Alan Arkin is probably one of the funniest people in movies. Can I tell you a great story about his dad? He just told me the other day. <laughs> I, I think I could, oh, I better wait and see. I, I got to get permission to tell it. For anybody that's trying to figure out who Alan Arkin is, he's the grandfather in Little Miss Sunshine and so many other movies where he plays that inappropriate old guy. Yes, yes. Like, he's so funny. Yeah, I got to tell you the story offline when we hang up because I'll get Tony's permission and then tell it at one of your uh, cocktail rooms (laughs) if I get Tony's permission to tell it. Yeah, yeah. So so that was the other thing is that I I wanted to make sure that you knew that you were invited to come into Cocktails in the War. What time is it at? It's always, it's, it's, always, it's a Tuesday nights at 8.30. Let's go. I'll show up for a drink. Well, you can't do it tonight because people got to hear the podcast Right. First. I mean, in the world of, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you got to hear the podcast first and then you got to come in the war room because then people will be able to super get nerdy because it's like the text line that we used to have at Love AAF. It. The comments come in in real time and so people can ask specific questions and I bring you in via Skype and it's been super cool to be able to have guests on as well Love it. i'll answer any af questions oak island questions whatever i was looking at your so i went to maddieblake.com yeah. you have oh, a God, website I which i just launched mistresscarry.com a few weeks ago so it's like awesome to get the website up and running and looking at your resume between the television stuff and the stand-up stuff the voice work the acting i mean your your career has kind of been all over the place yeah i mean yeah i guess you Maybe to a detriment in a way, I kind of always, someone once said, ride the horse in the direction the horse is going. You know, I never said like, I am this and I will do this. It's like, you get offered, you know, like Maddie and Nick is the prime example of that. I didn't move home to do radio. I moved home because I got Oak Island and we always wanted to live back in New England. I've been in New York City area for 15 years. I kind of made it to a point where I could live where I wanted to live. And so we moved back home. And when someone offers you a show with your name on it, uh, you know what I mean? You say yes. You say like, well, look, I don't do radio anymore. Like, you're stupid. Like, you know what I mean? Of course. And I knew it would keep my chops up and it would be a fun thing. So, yeah. It's one of my favorite movie quotes from Ghostbusters. When someone asks if you're a god, you say yes. (laughs) Yes. That's it, man. So, I mean, maybe to my detriment, maybe if I had said like, I am, you know, an independent film actor or whatever, you you would have success in that area. But I've always, to your point, wherever the opportunities were, and I was a little bit of a chameleon, you know, where I could be ridiculous on the radio, but I could also be embedded journalist, serious guy, and I could do a funny voiceover, but I could also do a serious straight announce, and I could do a dramatic commercial, and I could do a comedic commercial. Um, so I just, I just went where the jobs were, to be honest. Well, you were one of those people to go back to the beginning of this conversation about, you know, WAF going off the air. I had this very singular experience where my entire adult life and my entire professional career were under one roof, under one set of call letters. So for me, you had come to AAF, left, come back. You know, you had worked at Entercom at Star down the, down the, the hall. Like, you had been around, but you were always that person that was always doing a bunch of different things. 
And I didn't have that experience. So for me, it was so uprooting when AAF went off the air because it was all I knew. And you were one of the people that I kind of looked at and was like, there is a way to kind of chart your own course, diversify, follow your passions. And, you know, like you, you have a studio at home. You know, I just built MCHQ so that I had a place to work and to be able to kind of do whatever I wanted and also to be prepared for the happy accident, to be prepared for whatever opportunity could come. And you were one of those people that I spent a lot of time thinking about when, you know, last February when AAF went off the air that showed me like it is possible and it can be okay. Well, this comes back full circle to what we talked about at the beginning, being ready when you're when the number's called. Some, someone once said to me, I went to a pitch meeting at MTV. I was pitching a show idea with a producer, a friend of mine. This is my New York City years. And he said, I said, I got it all ready, the pitch meeting. And we met with the executives at Viacom. And he said to me, um, what are your backups? And I'm like, what? He's like, you never go into a pitch without like, unless you have like five ideas. And I was like, oh, duh, I didn't think about that. But it's kind of- I don't like that one. What else do you know? Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's like, I'm looking at your mic flag. I'm looking at that studio you built. My new when My logos. When- Whatever it is, it's a right around the corner for you comes, you are more than ready. You know what I mean? So this is a great, great reminder for me too. Like, yeah, you gotta you just gotta keep doing something. The pod I do the I don't do the podcast because it's a revenue source. I do the podcast because I created fun. something on my own. I designed the whole podcast, I created it with Tony. It keeps my skills sharp. I'm performing once a week. By the way, are not like even if we had, let's say we had a thousand downloads. If you told me, would you drive into town tonight to do a show for a thousand people? You bet your ass I would. I'd do it for 30 people, right? So whatever your podcast numbers are, it's worth it because you're doing it. And, and, and when the next job does come around, you say, well, I host shows on Oak Island uh, for the past six years. And I'm the host creator of a very popular podcast in that space of the paranormal world or whatever, right? It's a huge difference. Uh, just saying like, well, I used to do this. Now I'm waiting for the next opportunity. No, no, go create. That was, create well, that something. was the thing that was hard for me is that, you know, the only thing I did was WAF. Now I could say I also hosted 250 something episodes of Real Rock TV with Ian, which was great because it gave me television experience. And a lot of that footage is out on YouTube that you can find. And AAF was always a place that was ahead of its time when it came. I mean, we were viral generating viral content before viral content was even a term. Um, but that was the hardest thing for me was that all I did, all I was, was the person that worked at WAF. And so I didn't have, like you had when, when Maddie and Nick went off the air, all of these other things. So I had to sit down and really kind of reflect and go, what the fuck am I? What do I do if I don't do that? Because I don't know. That being said, you could have, I'm sure within a week, had had you been willing to not stay where you are, you could have gone to. Well, I did have job interviews and I've had job interviews since. And it and it wasn't even a relocating uh, thing. It was a COVID thing. Ah, right, okay. COVID shut it all down because, you know, radio stations started laying off staff. And I had some really interesting conversations in the weeks after AAF went off the air with radio stations near and far. And then as soon as COVID hit, but I mean, you know. you're a hustler, you know, you have a motor and 
uh, look, you've built AF right there. I can see it. It looks like you're in the AF studio. Yeah. It's amazing. Let me, tell, let me tell you, I make this joke all the time. I built a radio station in my house and it's cleaner than oh. any studio AF <laughs> ever had. I know that's because true. Because that studio was a fucking Petri dish. Oh. Like the morning, uh, the afternoon, I was on the air with Nick, and I said, "What is this on my?" Um, I had stuff all over me. Like, what is this? It was Greg's dip. It was like pieces of yeah. Greg's dip. I'm like, <laughs> I literally am going to throw up. I'm going to throw up on the air. <laughs> yeah, that studio was never <sighs> oh, clean, oh, ever. I think back at it now, and I'm like, I can't believe, especially with this germ phobic life that we're all living because of covid is just i just think about how disgusting that studio is and that we were all eating in there and we were drinking and touching the keyboards and the buttons and how are we not all sick constantly it's amazing I don't, I don't know well that's why i'm like maybe aaf studio made us all have stronger immune systems which is why we haven't gotten COVID that's what yet. the immunologists say they say exposure makes you strong yeah, well, we it, then we were in the Vietnam of exposure <laughs> because we were literally in the infected Petri dish in the studio of WAF all those fantastic. years. It's just unexplainable stains on furniture. <laughs> and just I think back at it, I'm like, that's one of a very few small things that I don't miss. You know, and the other thing is um, is the people. I miss being submerged and kind of enveloped in this creative that like at any time you could just run in the studio with a crazy, you'd come in and be, Carrie, we're recording in the other room. We need a yes. girl's voice. Can you come yes. and do this? Or, or I would come running in your studio because some big news broke about some musician and it was instant brainstorming of what we could do to get things moving. And I wicked miss that. That collaboration. I miss that a lot. Is, is, and I get it on Oak, but like I said, I only get it in, you know, Two weeks and then I'm home. In Two segments. weeks and then I'm home. Yeah. Um, boy, oh boy. Yeah, like that. Like I remember you just made me remember, well, you and I went through, I know we probably gotta go, but real quick, um, and we can do this maybe in the drink in your in, in the, the war room. room. Um I remember you and I at nine eleven, we were together on nine eleven. Yeah. And, and um I remember when Tom Petty died a couple of years ago, you came running in to me me and Nick were doing some fart joke. You came in, you're like, guys, I don't think this is, I don't know. I haven't got, you know, I'm getting confirmation from the label, but I think Tom T Petty. And then in that interim, we found out he did. And then they said he didn't. And then he said he did. It was like, but I just, that, yeah. And how do we handle it? And start playing, you know, let's see if we can play some Tom Petty music and let's do this and let's do that. I, I, that's just, that's yeah, that, thrilling. Yeah. That, that oh. fever pitch of, of in that's the moment. Thrill. And, you know, I look back at all of the memories at AAF and all of the things, and it's like there were so many amazing times, so many goofy, amazing memories. But especially this year with COVID, I really missed the way that we handled serious things and tragedy together. Because as much of a bunch of idiots as we all were, and as, and as crazy and you know, off the beaten path as the audience of WAF is, is we brag about being the outcasts. We always handled crisis better, I think, than any other community, the rock community, the AAF community, and so many of those milestone moments you're talking about, like being with you on 9-11, those are things that are so ingrained in my brain 
and the fact that I was with the people that I was with in that moment. I mean, you just, it's impossible to forget. It's like I could be right back in that studio now. And and this year is the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which I can't believe. It's been 20 years. I remember tough tough guy Rocco, um, we, we took a break. Do you remember a, a plane went right by the studio? Like a fighter jet went right by the studio. It was a fighter jet. Yes. Heading yeah. in. And it was, wait, 500 feet over the oh Mass Pike. It went straight into Boston, but it went, it was headed eastbound over the Pike. And, and it was so loud that even through all the soundproof glass that we had in the studio, it, it shook, shook the building. I, it was so loud. I remember loud. that distinctly. And I remember, I remember walking in, we took a break, like we played something and you, you, you stayed on like through our shift. You came on, then stayed on through our shift and stayed on yeah, th- that like, night. Yeah. Like Hillman was yeah. on in the morning. Then he stayed on yes. with me. And then I stayed on yes. with you guys. Like we were all just, just there. And just I remember staying. going into because we're, you know, not to get into a whole 9-11 thing, but we were going through it. So we were kind of like at that point, almost like reporting on it and, and just trying to figure out what happened and, and working it out. And then that when that thing flew by, it scared the crap out of us. We're like, are we under attack right now? No, that was one of ours. And, and then he flew off to the side. Okay, and all that. And I just remember we took a break and I walked into the our little office and Rocco was just bawling. I remember he was just at his thing, just bawling, you know, and I'm just like, wow. You know, Mr. Tough Guy, Mr. Uh, all the image, to your point of the type of people that worked at AAF. You know, a lot of bluster <laughs> to the public, but he was all heart, you know, in a lot of ways. And um, I'll never forget that moment. I just kind of like, I put my hand on his shoulder and, you know, it was, it was, it was I something remember, else. I remember driving home every day, crying the whole way home because I felt like, and it was the same thing with the marathon bombing too, that we were in the studio trying to be so professional and, being on the receiving end of all of the sadness and uncertainty and, and fear that was coming from the audience that I felt like I was a sponge, like absorbing it and then holding my, not wanting to be the blubbering person on the air. And then I would get in the car at the end of the day or at, late at night, most of the time, drive home in silence and just cry because it was the only way I could, I, could I could get rid of it. Yeah. yeah. And I remember... I remember what that feeling was like, and I bring it up because that's how I drove home the night that we went off the air. I can't even imagine that. How I that, was that for I you. just I turned the radio off because I, I, I couldn't turn it on. Obviously, I couldn't listen to anything, and I drove home that night. It was like I think by the time I went home, it was like three thirty in the morning, and I just remember driving home, and there was nobody on the road, and I just cried. And I had been crying the last couple of days on the air anyway, but this was like from my soul, like primal, like sadness, death, like a death whale. That's what it, and I haven't cried like that since that night. Well, it's funny. I heard it, uh, LB joke on, on when he was on, he said, I'm going to, I'm going to rob a bank and start AF again. Isn't there some millionaire or something that can just start another AF? Come on guys. Let's go. I know. Listen, I buy Powerball and Mega Millions <laughs> tickets, hoping that that could happen. You know, it would be the, it would be the all the bands that I talk to on the podcast are just like it would be imagining me with the money to be able to self fund my own rock station. It's like all the money would go to the lawyers to keep us from getting sued. <laughs> oh man, I'm so grateful that you came on the podcast, Maddie. It's so good to see your face. I'm so happy that. 
you've been able to kind of navigate that crazy year in such a positive way and that you're doing so well and that Oak Island is still doing so awesome. Thank you, Carrie. I really miss you and I love you. And um, yeah, I just really appreciate this. I love, I love catching up with you again. And I wish I had asked you out all those years ago. <laughs> in another um, life, we were married, Maddie. Life. You can find Maddie, uh, maddieblake.com is your website, obviously. And in the show notes of this podcast, I put all the links up to uh, Rated P for Paranormal. I put up all the Oak Island stuff, all your social media handles so that people can find you. And I'm totally serious about cocktails in the war room. Like, we got to work that out, that you got to come in, have a, have a cocktail with us and hang out and swap some stories and answer some questions. Because I know after people hear this episode that they're going to want to talk to I you. I love too. it. Let's do it. I'm there. There he is, the one and only Maddie Blake. If you're looking for him, all of his links for his podcast, his website, social media outlets, Oak Island, everything you need to know is linked in the show notes of this podcast. While you're checking out the show notes, don't forget to click the link for the custom playlist. I make one for every podcast episode, and of course, this one is filled with awesome Black Crows music. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to click subscribe so you don't miss anything on the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes every Wednesday, plus Monday through Friday, get all of your rock news, music headlines, and industry info in less than five minutes with the Situation Report. And like we talked about, Join me every Tuesday night at 8.30 live on my Facebook page for Cocktails in the War Room. Huge thanks to Digital Federal Credit Union at dcu.org for sponsoring this week's podcast. And this episode was sponsored by MistressCarrie.com. I want to send some special love to everyone on Patreon with the Mistress Carrie Backstage Pass. And of course, the Mistress Carrie Podcast is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.